This is Life in the Passing Lane, an autobiography by me. I'm Alex Bennett. When I first started this uh, whole idea of an autobiography, I said that some of these chapters may be out of order. And then it turned out that I really enjoyed telling them in order. And currently, we find ourselves in California. But I've got to do a special. I've got to do something a little out of order. So it's going to jump from New York to California, back to New York. You'll see what I mean in a moment. I'm recording this on June 20th, 2016. And the reason I'm telling you that is to put it in perspective if you listen to it a couple of years from now or whatever. But what happened a few days ago is I found out about the death of a dear friend of mine. Somebody who played very much into the history of all the things that I've done over the years. And uh, his name is Bruce David. And, you know, I, I'm very funny about friends, okay? People always like to say, oh, my friend so-and-so, and my friend so-and-so, and, you know, whatever. I, I could say, my friend Penn Jillette, you know. But, you know, friends, I think, are a special thing, separate and apart from acquaintances, and so I've only had a few friends in my lifetime. I mean, people that I could call friend at any given point in my life. And right now, as I get older, my best friends, which numbered about three a few years ago, have been whittled down to one. One of my friends was a guy by the name of Steve Gruberg, who I talked about on this series. And he was, I, I, I guess, the best friend I had because I saw him constantly, and he was constantly a part of my life. And that also with a guy by the name of Richard Sheckman, or we call him Shecky, uh, who is also my best friend. And there was Bruce. Now, I can't say that at the end of his life he was my best friend because we didn't talk that much. But let me tell you about Bruce. And I think I want to do this because I don't want him to be forgotten, okay? And it's very easy for certain people to be forgotten. Like, I, I figure I'm going to be forgotten very fast. I've been forgotten already, really, in a lot of places. Uh, people who don't know who the hell I am or don't care who the hell I am, where at one time everybody cared who the hell I was. But I want you to remember Bruce David. Now, I talked about Bruce when we were doing the shows on New York City and on the creation of Midnight Blue. I, got, I don't know when I first met up with Bruce, but it had to have been at Screw Magazine. He had been the editor of Screw Magazine here in New York, and then he kind of left Screw Magazine, went out to try and start his own newspaper, sex newspaper, and uh, that didn't go too well because, and this is the only, he's the only guy I ever knew that got taken for a ride by the mob to Brooklyn. What he did is he had this, uh, this newspaper he had created, kind of a competitor to Screw. And the mob uh, didn't really like the idea that there was a competitor to Screw because they were making a lot of money off Screw magazine in those days. So one day he's walking out of his apartment and there's a limo there, or a black car, and some very, shall we say, imposing people. And they said, get in the car. You Bruce David? Yeah, get in the car. Where are we going? You're going to Brooklyn. You got to meet with somebody. And they took him to Brooklyn. 
And as he put it, by the time I left Brooklyn, I had a check in my pocket and I no longer owned the magazine. And I said, well, why didn't you just keep the magazine? Why did you take the money? He said, the alternative wasn't very pleasant. They told me, you know, the, the old story about you either sell to us or you, um, you suddenly disappear from sight. And so he's the only guy I ever knew that actually took a ride in a limo or in a black car or whatever it was to Brooklyn to be told by the mob that he was going to sell whatever he had. Okay? But that was Bruce. Bruce was always getting himself in a little bit of a problem here or a problem there. Uh, Bruce had a temper on him. And, um, I, you know, you can't say it was a good temper because it wasn't. It was a terrible temper, uh, at, at least in those days. And the two stories that come to mind were uh, that in one case, he was walking down, uh, f I think, 14th Street. And uh, somebody came up to him and said, hi, you want some company? And, you know, it's, Bruce wasn't homophobic or anything else, but the guy was making a gay proposition to him. And he was in a particularly bad mood that night. And he just didn't want anybody even talking to him. And he picked the guy up and threw him through the window of a barbecue store. Um, he got arrested, but the charges were eventually dropped. But it wasn't, it wasn't a gay bashing thing. It was just Bruce. He was in a bad mood, and you just don't screw with Bruce when he's in a bad mood. Um, he had a girlfriend, and they were out on Fire Island. He always said, like on the summers, tried to take a house out or a share out, out in Fire Island. And uh, he told me this story, and she, uh, I think, cheated on him or something like that. And so that when they were walking down a pier in Fire Island, he threw her off the pier. <laughs> I mean, that that was Bruce. I'm surprised Bruce didn't wind up in jail for a long, long time for a lot of the stuff that happened in those early days. But he had this hair-trigger temper. And he was always making bad decisions with that hair-trigger temper. So when he came into my life, he was still this... Uh, it was almost like, like he was wound up and he was ready to spring at any moment, you know. And we started going kind of into business together because what we did is we started producing this show called Midnight Blue with Al Goldstein. And um, he always was kind of, how can I put it? I, I always felt intimidated by Bruce because if he didn't like something, he'd say, I don't like that. Don't do that. Let's not do that. And I would try to explain to him and he'd go, no, are you going to do it my way? And he was always very adamant. But it's funny that Bruce also had that ability to make me find better ways to do things. Let me give you an example. We went out and we recorded a show at uh, this club. Uh, and I can't remember. It, was like, it, it wasn't a gay review. It was kind of a, it may, it may have been a gay review. I can't remember exactly what the show was. But they did this show. And uh, I shot the some of the footage of the show, cutting in and out, using it and stopping it, and starting it and stopping it. And uh, then he did some interviews. And when we went back home and looked at the footage, we found, except for the interviews, 
it was totally unusable because I had stopped and started and there was no continuity to it. And uh, he said, we can't use any of it. Sucks. Stinks. He shot it all wrong. And he left. Well, because he, he intimidated me, I found a new way to edit. I found that I could take him interviewing the people, and as they were discussing the show, showing the footage of the show, and interspersing the pieces of the show with the interviews. And when I was through, it was very coherent. And I had learned something about editing, but because he had intimidated me into it, I came up with a way of solving the problem. And so I called him up, said, come on over. He watched it. He went, oh, that's great. Now it works. And I said, well, yeah, I guess uh, we can get it to work. And so that's what I loved about him. He was intimidating. You know, I would never put my foot down, and he would always put his foot down. And then I'd let him keep his foot down long enough that finally he would agree with what I wanted. Okay? Uh, but we were, together, we were, because of this, an unbeatable team of people who bettered each other, you know? Uh, I, my, my way of doing things complemented his other way of doing things. And sometimes when he didn't want me to do it my way or I didn't want him to do it his way, there was a compromise that was beautiful. It's kind of Lennon and McCartney. I mean, uh, you know, those songs never got written again after they broke up. You know, because they modified each other. And it was kind of like the video Lennon and McCartney. But uh, the thing about Bruce is Bruce always wanted to be in publishing. You know, he liked being an editor of a magazine. And so one day he came to me and uh, we just started our commercial shows. Uh, and he came to me and he said, uh, I'm leaving. I said, what do you mean? He said, I got offered a job by Larry Flint. Larry Flint had come to Screw Magazine on a couple of occasions to do interviews with Al, and Bruce got to know him for it. And uh, Flint got to know him. And Flint said, how would you like to come uh, out to, uh, I think it was Cincinnati at that time, because that's where Hustlers started. He said, how would you like to come out to Cincinnati and uh, be my editor? for this magazine I'm starting called Hustler. Or no, he'd already started it. It just didn't look very good. Uh, as Al Goldstein said, the only good thing about Hustler magazine in those days was that page one was followed by page two, if you were lucky. Anyway, so he, he quit. And he left me. It was kind of like, I felt, I felt we had had a baby together. Okay? And he had left me with the baby. Okay? To raise the baby to foster the baby, and if the baby got into trouble, to take care of it. And he was just leaving us behind, and he went out to Cincinnati and went to work for Hustler, which he stayed with for quite a long time. And that was the last time I talked to Bruce. I didn't talk to him uh, much after that. In fact, I don't think I did at all. And uh, I could never figure out why. I figured maybe he was mad at me. Maybe. But anyway... Uh, let's now cut, okay? It's almost 20 years later, okay? And I'm out in California, and I'm doing my show at Live 105. So that brings us right up to date, okay? 
uh, and I'm doing my show at Live 105. And I every now and then we get uh, we get pitches by people who say, would you like to have so-and-so on the show? Uh, they've got a book out and so on and so forth. Well, we got this one pitch and they said, would you like to have the editor of, uh, of Hustler Magazine on your show? Because he's starting a new magazine uh, for Larry Flint. And uh, I can't even remember the name of the magazine now. He said, his name is Bruce David, and he'd like to be on your show. And I went, wow, I haven't seen Bruce in 20 years. I thought he was mad at me. Well, this is a good way to make things up, you know. And um, I said, sure, I'll have him on. And so on the appointed morning, Bruce David shows up at my studio, and uh, we start doing the interview about the magazine. And, you know, as one thing leads to another, we talked about our days with Midnight Blue in New York City. And it was a very pleasant conversation. Now the show is over. I say, hey, look, would you like to go out and get some breakfast? We can go get some breakfast together. He said, sure. And we went and got breakfast. And I said, you know, it's been 20 years right? And he said, yeah. He says, it has been. I said, why haven't we talked to each other in 20 years? And he said, well, I thought you were mad at me. Well, he thought I was mad at him, and I thought he was mad at me. And so for 20 years, we didn't talk. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I never could quite figure out why we didn't talk, but it was just that fear that he didn't want to talk to me, I didn't want to talk to him. Bah, 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 bah. Now all of a sudden we're talking, and we're enjoying what we're talking about. And I said, hey, you know, really, uh, we shouldn't stop here, you know. We should uh, continue being friends and do, you know, I'll come down to L.A., you can come up to San Francisco, we can uh, start uh, start seeing each other you know and he said sounds okay to me you know and it was old and then i asked bruce what had happened in his life and he told me of a few very interesting things he had left a hustler at a certain point to go become a writer for television shows and he wrote alf uh an episode of alf an episode of family ties and eventually got a uh, a pilot deal, or got a, actually a series deal, or no, it was a pilot deal with ABC, which didn't uh, work out. But nevertheless, he was doing okay in television. He was actually making a nice buck in television. But then he just felt the television business wasn't for him. And Larry said, come on back. And he went on back to, you know, to uh, uh, Hustler. His years at Hustler were interesting, too. I mean, he was there in the mix when Larry got shot and when uh, Paul Krasner took over Hustler as the editor-in-chief while uh, Larry was trying to recover from his, uh, his wounds, as it were. And also, Larry had a lot of other problems. If you ever saw the movie, uh, he got into drugs, and he was just uh, he was in great deal of pain. Anyway, he remained as the editor of Hustler, and then uh, Larry started this new magazine, and he took that over. 
And one of the things that he said to me, uh, Bruce, was, why don't you write for the magazine? And I went, well, you know, I'm not a, really a writer. I did some writing when I uh, was in San New York with Screw Magazine, but I said, you know, I, I, I really wasn't a major kind of writer. And he said, I think you can write. And I said, oh, okay. He says, write me something. And I can't remember exactly what I wrote for the first thing for that magazine. But I wrote it, and he got back to me, and he says, great. I love it. Write me some more. And he literally was the guy that taught me how to write. He and Al Goldstein. Al Goldstein once said to me, when I said I couldn't write, he says, of course you can. Anybody can write. I said, what do you mean? He says, every night you go on the air and you talk. He said, all you got to do is instead of talking, put it on paper. Just write like you talk. And I did. And that's how I originally wrote for, for Screw Magazine. And now I essentially was doing the same thing for, for Hustler. But, but he would give me clues as to what to do and what not to do. And this is right and this is wrong. And he was my editor. So I would submit the thing and then he would pencil it and correct it and send it back and say, here are the changes I've made. And, uh, you know, but it, through that process, I actually became a pretty good writer. And when the magazine that he was doing failed, he went back to Hustler magazine, went back to being the editor. And he said, you want to write for Hustler? I said, yeah, sure. He said, well, write me an article. I need an article. Uh, uh, I think one of the ones he had me write was uh, uh, an article on the failure of Air America, which, if you all remember, was a radio network that was created that was supposed to be a progressive leftist uh, broadcasting outfit that failed miserably. And uh, I, uh, I wrote this article on it, and it was like 3,000 words. And that really, that kind of thing really taught me how to write. And he said, I tell you what, would you like a column? <laughs> he said, what? He said, yeah, would you like a column? And I said, sure. He said, just write me 1,200 words a month, right? We'll pay a dollar a word. And um, just write about anything you want to write about. And so I started every month writing a column for Hustler magazine. And I think this went on. God, I'm trying to think. I think it went on for about seven, eight years that I was writing a column for Hustler. And in the meantime, uh, I got to, of course, know Bruce better again, and, and we really liked each other, and we were getting closer as friends. He had gotten married uh, very late in life. Uh, he had never been married, got married at about 50. Uh, and uh, he then... Uh, had two kids, twins, right? He's like 52 years old, and he has kids for the first time, and they're twins, all right? And so he's raising these twins with his wife, and uh, got a great marriage, and everything was just going terrific. And so his life was a lot more, how can I put it, uh, uh, structured, because he needed to do that. You got kids now. You, you got responsibilities, you know. And a, a nicer guy, it, it from, uh, it, especially compared to the guy I knew in New York, you know. We all grow up. We all change. If we have a hot temper, sometimes that hot temper goes away. And in the case of Bruce, it, uh, it dissipated itself. 
and he was really terrific. Okay, the only time that 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 uh, dogmatic uh, part of him would come up was if you started talking to him about politics. Now, his politics and my politics were alike, but his politics were far more abrupt than mine were. In other words, yeah, we were both far to the left, but he was fist pounding, you know, and, then, and, and he also believed in conspiracies. He loved the conspiracies, you know. There's a conspiracy of this to do that and so on. He was a big conspiracy guy. And so there was a certain level of uh, what I considered uh, 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 a, a non-realistic approach to things because he thought everything had to do with some kind of international plot to get us and to get the people and to hold the people down. And, you know, so we would get into some very testy political fights, but both of us on the left arguing about stuff. Well, you don't know what you're talking about. And yet we're both leftists. We both agree with the basic principle of being leftist, and yet he would he would argue with anything. And I love that about him, you know? I love that about him. Uh, it, was, it was what made him special. And um, he would later bring that to my radio programs, but I'll talk about that in a second. So uh, it, we really had a pretty good relationship going. And I would go down to L.A., I would see him. He would come up, he'd see me. Uh, and uh, for the most part, uh, it was, a, it was a, just a fine, fine relationship. And we, and we talked to each other at least once a week. And it was, it, was, it was really close. And, you know, I talked earlier about who you call friends, who you call best friends. He'd become a best friend. The guy I hadn't talked to for 20 years was now a best friend. It was wonderful. And I loved him, loved his wife, his two kids, marvelous, you know, the twins. He's like in his 50s and he's raising kids for the first time in his life. And he's a great father, just a wonderful father. But he never lost that edge, you know. That edge was always there. So anyway, I, you know, one thing leads to another. And um, I moved to New York City because I'm out of work. And I, you know, we'll tell you all that part of the story coming up later on Life in the Passing Lane. Because now we're jumping ahead of where we are. And I went to work in New York and finally ultimately got a job at Sirius XM. And um, this was wonderful. Uh, because um, at this point, I started writing for Hustler. Uh, this was when I started. Uh, you see, I started writing for Hustler at that point when I got to New York. I didn't write for it before, okay? Uh, when I a moment ago told you that he said, started having me write for Hustler, I should have said, when I got to New York, he had me start, me, had me start writing for Hustler. It's a bit confusing. Anyway, uh, it was there that I wrote for Hustler. It was there that we kept talking to each other, you know, every every week or so. And then when it was time for me to uh, um, go out and uh, do this uh, thing where I was uh, installed in the Bay Area uh, Radio Hall of Fame, another thing I will talk about later, uh, he and his wife came up to join us for the ceremony. And then we, uh, we spent the weekend together. 
And I just said to him, you know, I said, I think of, of all the relationships I have, there are very few that I, that I relish and that I think the world of. And the one we have is one of them. And I said, I really, you know, and he says, I feel the same way. And I said, it's just, it's just, it was a, a wonderful feeling. And on a, one other occasion, I think we went out to California and we went to his place and stayed overnight. And we kept in contact with each other. And so I, of course, worked in New York for quite a while. And then all of a sudden, something happened in his life. Uh, something between he and his wife, and they split up. And um, it was a pretty tough breakup. I mean, it was no, no small thing. And um, he um, uh, it got really kind of strange, and he moved to he moved away up about forty miles north of where he had been living, or fifty miles north, up in the mountains, and he got himself a place up in the mountains. And I would call him, and he would kind of be a little like, "Oh, well, you know, I got stuff I got to do, so I'm going to have to hang up now." Or, uh, uh, you know, I can only talk for a short amount of time. In other words, he didn't really, we weren't connecting anymore. You know, he would tell me, I would ask him what's wrong with him or what's right with him. He would say, you know, that, that he was not feeling well or that he had an illness or something. And that the wife, he was having problems with the wife and so on. and The ex-wife. And, uh, you know, I, I, but I could never, I could never kind of connect with him like I had connected before. There was this kind of distance. And I don't think it was because of anything I was doing, but it was more of the space, the headspace where he was at at that time. And I was kind of sad about that because, you know, um, I, I felt a lot closer to him and I, I like to keep that closeness. But now he was the guy living up in the woods and, you know, his whole life had kind of changed and it was uh, disorganized. And I think he didn't feel real grounded at that point. And so we did, we then start talking every couple of months. You know, I would call him. He very seldom ever called me, but I would call him. A couple of times he called me. And then it started to dribble down to like once every six months. And, you know, it wasn't like it was. And I always felt bad about that. And in the last couple of weeks, um, I said to myself, I, it's time for me to call Bruce. I got to call Bruce. And every day I would say, today's the day I got to call Bruce. And then something would happen. I'd have to record this or I'd have to do something else. And I never quite got around to it. And I uh, kind of felt bad about that. But I finally was getting to the point where I said, I got to do it tomorrow. I got to do it the next day. And before I could do it, I got a message from one of my listeners, uh, Wes Baggett, and he said, so sorry to hear that uh, Bruce died. Now, a lot of people who listen to me, like Wes at Sirius XM, know who Bruce is, because Bruce used to call the radio show at least once a week, and he would go into his rants and his raves and his things about the conspiracies and all of that, and my audience loved him, okay? And so that's how Wes suddenly knew of Bruce. I mean, he had heard Bruce constantly 
on my radio program at Sirius XM. And Bruce would, as I say, he was so regular that I would say I could probably go back, take out seven discs and go looking for him from a particular week, and I would find him because he called at least once a week, all right? And, and I said, Wes, where'd you hear this? And he said, oh, it's just online, you know. And I went looking for it. I couldn't find anything. I said, where'd you find it? And finally, I went to, 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 to Bruce's page on Facebook, and his son had written that his father died. He died of septic shock. And I went, wow. That's, I don't think anything, the death of anybody, has affected me as profoundly as two people in my life so far. One of them was Steve Gruberg, and the other one is Bruce David. I don't know, you know, I don't believe in God, don't believe in a heaven, but if by some chance there is some psychic way, Bruce, that you can listen to me, uh, I miss you already, even though we hadn't talked in a while, because just not knowing that you're there for me to call gives me great pain. You were one of the most interesting people I've ever known. You were one of the most talented people you've, I've ever known. You're one of the people in my life that made me better at what I do. And I just got to say, if somehow you can hear me, I love you and I miss you, Bruce David. This has been Life in the Passing Lane, an audio biography by me. I'm Alex Bennett.